our own Ummah is also in this terrible state of forgetting this wisdom of mercy. Yassiru wa la tu'asiru. Make things easier, he says, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Don't make them harder. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala ashrafil anbiya wal mursaleen. Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. What we can reflect on, I think, in this particular context is uh, one of the usul of the age, not so much the furu' but the usul. So much of our Islamic conversation is about firefighting, little fatwas about issues that suddenly arise, pre-stunned halal meat or niqab requirements in Denmark, or we run from crisis to crisis, uh, getting quite out of breath and anxious in the process. But what we need to do in the manner of the uh, great ones of the past, a Ghazalian approach, if you like, or the approach of Shah Wali Dehlavi, those who think about what it's all for, is to consider what should be the deeper strategy, not the tactics, but the strategy. That means longer-term understanding of our relationship with Bani Adam and history at this particular difficult, unheralded point in the evolution <coughs> of Bani Adam. But also the extent to which <coughs> we engage or disengage. And this is something that is, uh, it seems, prophetically foretold and anticipated. <coughs> Muslims do love those YouTube clips about the end times and how certain Quranic verses <coughs> have amazingly come true in our modernity, space travel or the shape of the earth or <coughs> embryology or the Dajjal, who of course is <coughs> used to be the Television, the one I did, yeah, now I guess it's the computer, and no doubt the interpretations will continue to evolve. Uh, but there is certainly in our tradition a strong, not only eschatological warning, because this is the final revelation, and the Holy Prophet والسلام, is Al Aqib. An Al Aqib, Falana Biya Badi. I am the last the one who rounds things off, there will be no prophet after me. And that one of his names is Nabiul Malhama. Malhama sometimes translated as battles, raids, but it's specifically to do with end-time eschatological flare-ups, Malahim. When we think of Malahim, we think about you know, the, the Turba Magna, the dissolution at the end of the historical Cycle. So there is already in our self-understanding as a community this idea that we're the ones who uh, end it all. So not only do we have that, I mean, the Bible ends also with end-time predictions, but we also have guidance on what to do if one happens to find oneself through divine decree, not through choice, in those times. Now, مَا الْمَسْؤُولُ عَنْهَا لِأَعْلَمَا إِنْهُ مِنِ السَّائِلِ 
the one asked of it, the hour, when's it all going to happen, does not know any more of it than the questioner. He does not know, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, this is in the, the hadith. We therefore cannot know. But it is, in any case, a fool's errand to try and say that we are at this point in the divine calendar. We don't know. Our founder didn't know. Therefore, we can't know. But instead, we can at least be aware that in times of turbulence, certain strategies are counseled. This is what you won't find in the Ahl al-Kitab and their literature. Not only the terrors of the beast and the, and the Antichrist and the uh, book of Revelation, the most uh, blood-curdling coda to uh, the New Testament, when Christ appears with feet of brass and eyes of fire, casting his enemies into the eternal flame, but also what to do in that time. By qiyas, by extrapolation, anything that looks like the termination of a civilizational cycle, when things seem to be bad, uh, is going to learn from that advice. Now, the most evident advice is the one which we are generally not inclined to follow. Yushiku an yakuna khayra malil muslim ghanaman yattabi'u bihi shi'ab al-jibali wa mawaqi' al-qitri yafirru bidinihi min al-fitan The times almost come, he says, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when the best thing a Muslim can own, get hold of, will be some sheep with which he seeks out the remote valleys and the places where rain falls, fleeing with his religion from fitna. There's other hadiths like this, and we know that one of the counsels for times of great turbidity in human affairs is to head for the hills. Maybe in a kind of weak, analogous, pathetic way, are coming here rather than going into a huddle in a city as a kind of realisation of the wisdom of that. Uh, there is more clarity when surrounded by the calm of nature than the uproar of urban <coughs> life. But in any case, whether or not we take ourselves to be in terminal times, uh, the question of the believer's appropriate strategy, rather than just firefighting fatwas, is something that is necessary to sort out. How should we be in a time that doesn't understand us and which we hardly understand. Here in Britain, no longer even surrounded by the Ahl al-Kitab, is there anything in our fiqh literature that explains how you deal with our situation? We've had contexts in our history where we've lived as minorities in imperial Russia or wherever. And the very first, Muhajirun went to al-Habasha with a Christian king, and they could line up and recite Surat Maryam, and there was common ground. We can intermarry, we can break bread with them, we can eat the meat that they slaughter, but what do we do now when these people no longer have a kitab? Most people, and it happened in this decade, in England now no longer self-identify as Jews or Christians. There's something else, they're coming here and doing some kind of probably atheistic mindfulness, or they're chasing New Age mirages, 
or they just read Christopher Hitchens and insist on the heroism of belief in final mortality and the void of unmeaning, but they're not any longer Ahlul Kitab. <clears throat> so how do we engage with them? The issue regularly arises. More and more Muslims are intermarrying. What do you do when the girl is really not very sure about anything? Very often we have to put them through their paces and see if we can still find some kind of ta'wil that allows us to categorize them. An odd circumstance that it should be the Muslims who determine whether somebody is actually Christian or not. Odd times. So we need, in these times, when we are surrounded by people whose belief is ultimately in the void, that the miracle of the world and of human teleology doesn't really come from anywhere transcendent, won't end anywhere transcendent. There is no guarantee of moral redress in this world, and morals themselves are just human constructs, part of the selfish gene strategy to ensure a society in which the selfish gene can propagate itself, a very dark image to have replaced the Christianity which it has supplanted. What do we do when this is our environment and context? Who are they exactly? What should be our intersubjectivity, our relationship with them? Is it benign? Is it hostile? Do we embrace them? Do we step back? Do we buy our sheep and head for the hills? Um, these are questions which we need to be considering. And as I've said, our fiqh and our heritage doesn't actually give us too much guidance on what to do when you're with people who don't believe in another belief but don't have a belief at all. Now, globally, this is unusual. Our situation in Western Europe is not the situation of Muslims in America, where the Crystal Cathedral is still full of 15,000 hand clappers every Sunday morning. Uh, here, there's no Crystal Cathedral, just a few parish churches with six or seven old ladies uh, fumbling with uh, hymn books once a week. <coughs> Europe is the exception. Uh, but here we are. And maybe Europe is the future, although the global percentage of atheists is still less than 2%. Maybe it will increase, but who knows? The history of religion <coughs> is, like the nature of the human soul, unpredictable, unforeseeable, unguessable. Who knows? There's something of the mystery of the ruh about it, because it's to do with inner tides, nothing that mere sociologists could have a view on. Now, it seems to me that the place to start is with the Khalaqa Adama ala surati. What are we looking at when we are surrounded on the underground by people who look like anybody else, but in whose hearts there is just this void? We try to live decent lives according to their lights, but whose moral codes seem to be slipping in such extraordinary directions that everything becomes just a matter of the sovereign individual's choice. No matter that the neuroscientists are now saying that the self probably is just an illusion and a fantasy of free will, which was the basis of the Enlightenment's idea of how to replace religion, is probably an imagination. That doesn't matter. Instead, they're convinced that the self is the basis for everything. You make your own meaning. What you prefer is sovereign. 
unless occasionally, awkwardly, it gets in the way of what somebody else prefers, in which case there needs to be some kind of legislation, <coughs> protected categories or whatever, and that always turns out to be difficult, not least because the values are in a state of constant evolution. <coughs> so the believer living in the society that no longer has its anchorage in a kitab of any kind, but is just following al-ahwa, ultimately, human preferences and desires, which pull us in all kinds of directions, but given their nature, tend to be susceptible to the forces of gravity. Generally, human beings, when told to follow what they prefer, will move in a downwards rather than upwards direction, because this is uh, the nature of, of the nafs. But some are struggling and some are trying to find value even in this valueless world of so many souls expressing themselves and even in the kind of 19th century romantic way sometimes thinking that if only they follow themselves and are true to themselves to the nth degree some kind of transcendence will be disclosed. It doesn't usually work out that way. Follow yourself and you'll find what all of the traditions have always recognised, which is that the nafs is a kind of trap and an illusion. You'll find that it kind of comes to pieces in your hands and you just get dragged towards ahwa. And often a lot of inner traumas will result. If society is now telling you, never mind the church, be true to yourself, discover yourself, be yourself, even though its scientists are convinced that the self is probably just a cultural invention. If you're in that antinomy, that paradox, and you follow what you think you truly are, <coughs> you will end up very often in a state of trauma and distress. Hmm? I feel that I'm truly British. So I try to reach for that and discover what it is, and I get into it, and I end up who knows where. It's, it's just a label. It's not, not a reality. And then I find there's other people who express it differently. Or I feel I have a particular desire. Now they're talking about tetrasexual rights. I feel that I'm tetrasexual, and nobody can go against this and I wish to form a tetrasexual circle with other consenting adults, and I want government to call this marriage. How could anybody be so tetraphobic as to go against this? Shocking. It's, it's on my right. I know, and I've known since the age of four, so it must be right, that I'm tetraphobic, uh, that I'm tetrasexual. So, <clears throat> this goes on, and the result is often trauma. Sometimes the overcome of prejudice, sometimes a kind of liberation, but we don't know where it is all going to lead. Now the response from the believer looking at this galaxy of Ahwa, instead of boring moralistic opposition and told you so, ought to be compassion. Maybe that's the point at which we start. Hmm? If people find that the ruh is veiled and they're told that the nafs is what you really are and if you follow that as much as you can you will achieve some kind of autonomy and you will grow into your full selfhood, enlightenment style. Uh, then 
those who are from every religious tradition will have to show compassion. Because if they're trapped in the hall of mirrors that is the self, uh, which is the self trying to understand itself, it's already a, a paradox. You need the sheikh, the teacher, the mirror, something outside yourself, and then you see the falsity of what you take to be yourself. But if they no longer have that language and can't conceive of it, and it's just the self, just the me, the me generation, the response has to be compassion. And this is where a lot of our preachers go wrong. It's meaningless to fulminate against them when this is all that they know. If they are told that your happiness consists in being true to yourself, and the self is defined as your preferences, whatever you feel you truly are, however transparently, historically, and socially constructed that might be, uh, then the correct believing response is mercy, compassion, not anger and self-righteousness, uh, cursing and spitting from the pulpit, but really these people are the innocent victims of a system that uh, is out of control. Why blame them if they've never had access to anything else? Meaningless, immoral, un-Islamic, unfruitful. So the first principle has to be this idea that every human being created in God's image, with all of the conditionality that that form of language necessarily refers to in our, in our transcendentalist tradition. Tenzi cannot be compromised by Teshbih. But still, the angels bowed down to the ancestor of this campaigner for te tetrasexual marriage. Angels bowed down to that person's ancestor. Whatever he thinks his ancestor might have been, something slithering in the primordial ooze, whatever, we have a higher opinion of him and his self than he has. Karamna bani Adam. We have ennobled the descendants of Adam. Even if he, she, or they, tetrasexuals referred to by the pronoun they usually, even if they is, uh, who knows what, still that imago day cannot be completely lost. And the Allama Adam al Asma'a Kullaha, this beautiful humanistic beginning to our scripture, is still there, even if. They can't see it, we can't see it, but we know that it's there, and we know that that person was present at the day of Alas to be Rabbikum. In the presence of God, naturally a believer, Yuladu al Fitra. So we respect people for what they were, for what they are called to be, for the purpose of their creation, and then we look at them with sorrow and compassion as we look at ourselves, who also mess up. And on that basis, then we can begin this process of conviviality with this new form of Bani Adam. <clears throat> this is going to take us a lot further because mercy tends to melt hearts and furious khutbas tend not to. Ma <clears> agdabta rajulan <throat> faqabila mink. 
if you make somebody angry, he'll never accept what you say. This is Suleiman bin Tarkhan, who was one of the early Muslims. In other words, if you're evoking the anger and the wrath within your own ego and saying, Haram, you're just a disgusting tetrasexual, huh? and you want to marry, this is just a circular whatever. If you get into that space, uh, they're not going to listen, they're not going to accept, but un unfortunately we are normally in that space. So, getting out of our own egotistic trap, escaping from that into the space of compassion and human solidarity uh, is much more interesting and much more likely uh, to, uh, to make headway. So that, it seems, is the first step. The next step is to recognize that in our time <coughs> of religious uproar, as well as secular uproar, we can spend much of our lives hyperventilating about ikhtilaf of various kinds. Those Brailvi scholars who spend their whole lives refuting the Deobandi scholars, and vice versa, this is not the best use of our time and our minds and our intentions and our resources. How often does it work? Not very often. This is an age in which people are weak and an age in which arguments are more charged with ego and tahazzub, party spirit, than ever before. And an age in which people are less likely to listen to proper Sharia arguments because everything has become a matter of solidarity and ancestry, like the Jahiliyyah, Hamiyat al Jahiliyyah, this feverish determination to follow what one recognizes and what one is, the difficulty of being really open minded to somebody else's perception. This is I'ajabu kulli di ra'yin bi which is one of the qualities of the time. Everybody is delighted by his own opinion. So <coughs> instead of campaigning, crusading out there to make everybody agree with us, instead we need to read what even Olama of generations far better than our own have said about this. So, for instance, one of the great ulama of the Ottoman Empire, known as Katib Chelebi, writes this very interesting book, which exists in large measure in English, Mizan al-Haq, The Balance of Truth. And he's living in a time where there's all kinds of religious dissension and a kind of puritanical movement called the Qadizad Aliza, cutting up nasty in Istanbul and beating up Christians and smashing wine shops and that, that sort of thing. Uh, fighting bid'ah. And he says, if a bid'ah is entrenched, then opposing it is, he says, azim hamarket v'jehildir. It's really great stupidity and ignorance. You're not going to uproot it. It's there. You will simply exacerbate it. Even earlier on, Ibn Rushd al-Jadd, in his Muqaddamat, uh, says something similar. He says, if you try to uproot a bid'ah in our time, you will end up making it stronger. People will 
become defensive and they will turn this bid'ah into a kind of badge of their identity. It becomes essential to who they are and any kind of sharia argument becomes reinterpreted or inaudible because you're attacking them. This is just the primitivism of human nature. And he's saying that, what, about 800 years ago? Hmm. Muhammad bin Pir Ali al-Birgivi, in the kind of time of Katib Chalabi, a little bit earlier, 16th century, has this book, At-Tariq al-Muhammadiyya, Muhammadan Path, in which he's talking quite often about certain popular practices and doctrinal errors and the ikhtilaf and the things that believers love to get wound up about. And he says that it is forbidden to give people al-ahwat min al-fatwa. The stricter fatwa is forbidden to give. There's so many different interpretations of different things. This is halal, this is haram, this is bid'ah, this is some kind of acceptable bid'ah. In many things in sharia, there is the rukhsa and the azimah, the easy way out, I'm going to join my prayers, even though, and there is the strict application to standard topic in usul al-fiqh. He says, in this age, you have to give people the easier interpretation. Why? Because everybody is so weak. Everybody is so weak. The believers are weak. Give them too much and they'll collapse under the weight. That kind of idea. Never does religion become heavy upon somebody except that it kind of defeats him. And the wise preacher knows how much he or she can load an individual believer's back with, but there's always more. <laughs> there's always more if you look at all of the optional prayers and fasts and don't load people up. So Al-Birgavi in Tariq al-Muhammadiyah is saying it's forbidden to give people the narrower, more precautionary fatwa because people are so weak. Now that is the time in the 16th century when Suleiman the Magnificent is on the throne. Okay, the Muslims are besieging Vienna. The Ummah, the flag of the Khilafah, etc., etc., is flying from Hungary to Aden, from Morocco to Baghdad, one Ummah under one Sultan. And it's a time of great madaris, Darul Hadith, commentaries, Amazing, an era of flourishing, a kind of golden age. But he's saying people are so weak in this time that make things easy for them. If that was the case back then, what should be the view right now? And yet in our time, everybody is getting off on finding narrow interpretations. The rukhsa has become something suspicious for weaklings, inauthentic not genuine or sincere. And the azima has become kind of the same as proper practice. Even though the Holy Prophet says, alayhi salatu wasalam, inna Allah yuhibbu an tu'ta ruhasu, kama yuhibbu an tu'ta azaimu. Allah loves his concessions in the law to be taken just as he loves for the stricter interpretations to be taken. But uh, because so much of our religious decision-making nowadays is governed by the self, the nafs, and by a desire to feel special and superior and secure. 
we feel it's better to choose these really narrow interpretations, which of course rules out all of the other Muslims who are following some other interpretation. And as a result, do you get mayhem, disunity, disrespect, a mess, and religion becomes quite burdensome. Those terrifying khutbas, uh, where you come out of the mosque feeling, oh God, I'd rather be in the dentist than in that mosque. <laughs> oh, that really hurts. Uh, the Mulvi Saab has been telling you about how many hundred millions of years you go to if you miss your duha prayer or something. You go to hell. Ah, yeah, plenty of that. And they think this is tarheeb, uh, scaring people with tales of the divine fury as if God is there to catch us out. He's created the world just to see if he can catch us out, which is a curious reason for creating such an amazing cosmos. And Bani Adam, he wants to kind of catch us out. Ha! Gotcha! <laughs> Not really. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, his names that he describes himself as. Uh, but nowadays, the preacher who gives people uh, the good news for Bashir Ibad, mm, people are a bit unsatisfied. It's kind of soft. Uh, we want the the thunder, and we feel, oh, now we're with the real, uncompromising believers. And this is all nafs, this is all egos, it's nothing to do with usul, it's nothing to do with sunnah, it's nothing to do with wisdom, it's just our desire to feel that we're tough and uncompromising. Why? Because we're insecure and anxious. Hmm. Yeah, emotion not a good basis for any religious decision, particularly in something like usul. But this is a very common culture amongst Muslims in this decadent time. That what's authentic is what is really narrow and uncompromising. Why am I walking through the streets of Walsall in the rain, dressed like I'm in the deserts of Arabia? It's because I'm not going to follow any rukhsas. I don't want to look like, like the kuffar. I'm going to be authentic. Ah, I'm special. Look at me, everyone. Well, he doesn't quite say that as well, but this is what he means. And actually, he's doing it for himself, because he's insecure and he doesn't really want to get into anything that looks like a grey area. Uh, it's not a grey area, the Rukhsa is not a grey area, but he pleases himself by following this narrowness. And then others look at him and say, well, we can feel superior to him by being narrower still. MashaAllah, the Jubba is going to be a little bit higher and the turban can be a little bit bigger, and we're going to wear sandals rather than his stupid sneakers, and we're going to be even more authentic and far from any bid'ah, and then somebody else does it, and there's a certain logarithmic sort of succession of this which afflicts a lot of Islamic work nowadays. If you look at a lot of revolutionary Islamic movements, you'll find that what's there now is much more extreme than what was there 20 years earlier, and that was much more extreme than what was there 20 years earlier. It just gets more and more wild and ludicrous because people really love their sense of specialness. Well, that's a sign of decadence. So what do we do in that context? If we've seen the outside world is full of people who believe in the void, who think there's nothing intrinsic about good and evil, really, but it's a kind of social utilitarian contract that is endlessly negotiable, and they feel that they want to have a tetrasexual marriage or whatever, mother-son marriages, whatever it is that these civil liberties people are next into, the next stop on the line to 
destination X. They don't really have a long-term view of where we're going, but we have to liberate ourselves. So those, it seems, are some of our neighbours. Uh, but our own Ummah is also in this terrible state of forgetting this wisdom of mercy. Yassiru wa la tu'asiru. Make things easier, he says, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Don't make them harder. There's plenty of hadiths like that. That's a sound hadith. Ma khuyira rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam abayna amrain illa wakhtara aysarahuma ma lam yakun fihi ithn. Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was never given the choice between two things, but that he chose the easier, as long as there was no sin in it. So, but now, mm, we want whatever seems to be really kind of tough and hard and it's uh, perverse. As though we're so full of our own sense of macho that we deliberately go to the dentist who's going to hurt us most because we think, oh, I'm really not making any concessions in my dentistry. MashaAllah, I'm a real tooth hero or something. I'm a <laughs> dental mujahid. Allahu Akbar. <laughs> Allahu Akbar, I went to that really bad dentist and it hurt so much, but I didn't make any concessions. Allahu Akbar. Yeah, that's how we do our usul nowadays. And this is, of course, for ordinary Bani Adam who just are struggling to pray five times a day. is terrible. So they come out of the mosque kind of feeling really bad. Yes, God has created the world as a kind of lethal minefield. Put one foot wrong and... Off to hell for a hundred billion years. <laughs> Mulvi Saab said so. Uh, careful and life becomes very anxiety inducing as a result. But this is not how the Holy Prophet was, alayhi He made things easier for people. Took them out of a pagan worldview which genuinely was full of crazy honor codes and vendettas and narrow-mindedness and stupid cults and made things just a lot easier. It was a liberation. That's why people joined him in such vast numbers. It's not really what we're offering to the outside world nowadays, unfortunately. We offer them something really difficult, really hard. Uh, we don't give them any kind of transition or gentle way in the way we used to. Uh, it's all or nothing. Be perfect or else. God only accepts Superman in paradise, you have to be some kind of amazing super abid tiptoeing through the minefield until your final day and then you've kind of made it. But intelligent people, even believers in the void, are not particularly magnetized by that strange understanding. And they can see as well as anybody does the emotionality and the anxiety and the panic attacks in the Ummah that have generated this. So we need to move away from that, but where do we turn? That's the last thing I wanted to address. If we really recognize that the modern idea of the self taking us to self-realization and therefore happiness isn't working too well, and is producing an incredibly greedy economic climate that is destroying the planet, so much human greed because we know we need and deserve those products that the planet can't take it, and the planet's pretty big, but it's, it's struggling under the weight of human greed and competition and avidity for more stuff. That's not particularly sustainable or attractive to us. Hmm? Just takathur, al-hakumut takathur. Uh, 
So we look to our own tradition <coughs> and we find the Maulana of this mosque cursing the Maulana of the next mosque and every generation of <coughs> radicals seems to be more wildly extreme and outlandish. That's a, a disturbing environment as well and quite damaging to the heart. Religion is to be the garden in the midst of the fire of human ego, but it looks pretty burnt up itself nowadays. Where do we go? Al-Murshid al-Kamil, the Sheikh. Why is it that we had in our history these modules, these fellowships within the larger Ummah called Tariqah? Just so that within a certain social environment, something of the spirit of brotherhood and openness and mutual trust that united the Sahaba could be preserved. Outside on the street, who knows how the Muslims five centuries on were behaving, but in the Tariqah you have something of the reconnection, something of the real atmosphere of fraternity and equality of the Muhajirin and the Ansar, and that was a precious thing that was conserved like a, like a time capsule. Looking for that now might be difficult. Not impossible, <coughs> but nobody says that it's easy. <clears throat> what do you do in a time where the shuyukh seem to have wound on their shrouds and moved on to the better world, leaving us as kind of orphans? Mm. We still have the risala. We still have the five pillars. Our religion is intact despite the wildness of our egos, the prayer, the fast, these things are preserved intact, and that's an extraordinary blessing, and is one of the chasais of this ummah. But if I really want not just to be somebody who follows his ego, whether it's in fatwa or in this atheistic, I want to be me culture, uh, if, I want, if I don't like being me, and I know that the me is not really what I'm supposed to be, and I have some kind of glimpse of a better way of that me to be, Nafsalawama, maybe. Who's going to help me with that? Malli biraddi jimahin min gawayatiha. Who's going to help me hold the reins of this crazy stallion of my ego? I know where it wants to go, and it never stops. In every instant, there's one thing that it wants to do that's not the best thing. It never leaves me alone. How am I going to deal with that? The GP can't give me a tablet. Psychology doesn't really understand that there can be more than just the me, the turbulences of the self. Where do I go? <clears throat> Where is al-Murshid al-Kamil? In this time, what the awliya and what the ulama tend to do is, first of all, to remind us of Allah's mercy. This is not, God has not created the universe as a minefield, but as a garden. And wherever you look, if you look right, <coughs> There is God's face. There is no place where he is distant. Mm. We are distant. He is not. Subhanaka. Ma aqrabaka minni wa ma ab'adani ank. Ibn Atta'il al-Iskandari says this. Subhanak, ya Allah, this is an amazing thing. Huh? How close you are to me. But how far I am from you. And this is the basic thing of the human predicament, this entity to which all of those angels bowed down. All of them is kind of fiddling with his phone and doing inferior stuff, not living in the supra-angelic context for which we are created. 
kind of messing around. Well, how do we get out of that? How does the self get out of itself? It's the old paradox. Ah, because the divine is there. The world is a mirror. Everything is a divine sign. One of the reasons why our scripture particularly emphasizes the indicativity of the world and the, na- the divine name Al-Qarib is because this Ummah is going to be the Ummah of the Torba Magna, the end times when the guides are gone and everything is really hard, really crazy stuff, haraj, rotting, chaos, everybody following completely crazy desires and everything super abundant except what human beings really need. The religion is designed for that and it has these techniques, one of which is cultivating the gaze. Nature, the believer, isn't too interested in glass skyscrapers but responds to uh, the heart-melting symmetry and calmness of the natural world, which has not been erased despite the best efforts of the self-oriented biocidal global culture. It's still out there. There's still trees and things, birds, birds still sing, the sky is still beautiful, the moon still rises and sets. Uh, and in this, لَآيَاتٍ لِأُولِي albab signs for people of lub understanding. That lub is a Sufi term as well. So this tafakkur continues to be a valid method for us. Uh, but it has to be a still regard for things, not just uh, looking at a tree from out of a high-speed train, but somehow really engaging with it, really engaging with it. Being in the moment, which means being in reality, being Ibn al-Waqt, being aware of the unique, irreplaceable, miraculous nowness of things. Being harder, present. And if you're harder, then he is al-Qarib. Because wherever you turn, there is his face. Uh, that's a Quranic verse. Can you imagine if, say, al-Hallaj had said that? Half the Ummah nowadays would say, Kufr, haram, shirk! Yelling, but it's in the Quran, so they, they can't do that. But we've been given all of these haqaiq in our, in our scripture. And... That is one method, reconnecting. And this is the practice of siyaha, wandering in nature, which was what healed Imam al-Ghazali's soul uh, during his crisis. Engage with it and remember that you're part of it. And remember that the practices of the sunnah are to be cherished and reverently maintained because they re-emphasize and re-establish your membership of the natural world. Because the sunnah and the ibadah is determined by the rising, the setting of the sun, the moon. You're re-entering the world, the natural world, the world of cyclical time, not the world of linear time, which is what humanity now inhabits, which is unreal. 24 hours a day, tick, tick, tick. That's not really part of the nature of the world. But when your life is shaped not so much by that, but by the prayer and by the sacred months and all of those things and by the Hajj, you're out of that linear time into cyclical time and you're reconnected to something really ancient and primordial. There's a profound healing in that. 
And if you really condition yourself with these ancient uh, sacred practices that no human hand has ever contaminated, because that really would be bidder, uh, then there is uh, a softening of the heart and the possibility of its opening. Also seeing this in the human other, particularly, and this is the tradition of what we call the shahid, the human being who is the witness to the divine. Looking around yourself on the central line, it might seem a little bit improbable, um, but it's still true. Every human being different, a particular configuration, coagulation of the divine properties in that person, and that's just his or her DNA, which is not the most interesting bit, that's the clay bit. But the immortal soul, the miracle of the spirit, the most interesting thing on earth, and the thing that the shiur really never tire of enjoying and contemplating, that's interesting. That should jolt us out of our jadedness, this extraordinary fact of consciousness in the world, and seeing, contemplating the quality of that person. And this is nothing to do with the modern transactional idea of ethics and human rights. This is something much deeper. People are intrinsically valuable. Karamna Bani Adam. And each one has something slightly different to tell you about the divine purposes. Like ourselves, they may not have realized those purposes and the divine qualities in that person may be rather hard to see. Um, but... Uh, you should always try to see what God means by that person and the uniqueness of the divine self-disclosure in that person. And in some Toruk, they have the charming idea that the human face is actually composed of the letters of the Arabic alphabet, khalwatiyah in Turkey like this. So the alif is the nose and the ayn for the eye and they have a whole thing about that because uh, in the human face, the chehre, the countenance, there is inscribed um, these sacred qualities, which are ultimately the divine names. When you can read that, you really try to see what God means by another human being, uh, then you're taken back to that Adam God taught Adam all of the names, and then you can really find something endlessly fascinating and amazing in other human beings. But because we no longer think human beings are legible, we have this modern alternative, human rights and this individuality and this, this right to do this and all of this stuff. Oh, and it becomes more and more anxious and anxious and anxious until you get to tetrasexual marriage rights or whatever it might be. And it goes on and on until it reaches destination X. Nobody really knows where it could lead to, because human desire for self-expression and autonomy is limitless. Uh, that instead of that, you have something that isn't in a state of constant flux and movement and uproar, but is in a state of stillness and awareness of the moment. The gender thing has a lot to do with this. Why is it that the gender relationality, boy meets girl, husband and wife, is under such strain nowadays because we no longer contemplate the divine purposes in the other. We no longer have a sense of reverence for the mystery of gender. 
It's just the selfish gene doing its thing and doesn't intrinsically mean anything because nothing intrinsically means anything. But the purposivity of human beings, are their teleology, that where they are going, what they are for, what they indicate, for sure, something truly amazing. And you can only really determine rights, if we have to use that word, and generally in ethical traditions we prefer duties to rights. Duties are what make us noble and useful. Rights are what make other people useful to us. It's better to be useful than for others to be useful to you, but rights is the language of, of the age. And all of this stuff about uh, how society should be organized and how men should be and how women should be, which is one of the big turbulences of the age and causes immense confusion, should be resolved not by forensically measuring who should do what or hyperventilating about essentialism and stereotypes, but instead the believers gaze on the miracle of gender dimorphism and seeing the magnificence of womanhood, beauty, new life, nurturing, these are divine qualities, most interesting things in the world. What's more interesting than beauty and life? And uh, Therefore, respect her. Uh, and also masculinity, hmm, the protection, the fighting quality, uh, the traditional role of the male, not seen as a basis for kind of Tarzan-like chest-thumping. Uh, it's not ego. This is not about machismo, but merely about the recognition of a divine purpose. When you see that, when the spouse sees that, not what that person is, but what that person is called to be in the principle that is there, then you have a real sense of complementarity and the possibility of spiritual growth and flourishing so that the physical issue, the children, become just a kind of symbol of something, um, of, a, of a deeper fertility. But we no longer think in those terms because of our superficiality and the invention of photography really hasn't helped. Everything stops on the surface nowadays and looking at the essences has become difficult because, hey, we don't have much time. But in that contemplation there is also an awareness of the divine wisdom. Mm for Ulul al-Bab. In other cases, other examples could be cited of how in an ordinary, non-tariqa, profane, even office environment, one can engage in this tafakkur, which leads us on to dhikr, which is, in a sense, all that you need. The shaykh is not an, anything other than a means to an end. The murshid is there to help you remember God. End of story. God can disclose himself to you in any way he pleases. He continues to be Al-Qarib. He never calls himself Al-Ba'id. If my servants ask you about me, then I am near, Qarib. It's a Ramadan-related verse, isn't it? He's Qarib in Ramadan because the ego is kind of a bit bashed and not so exuberant and difficult, is it? often is, and the spirit can start to feel itself and start to fly if we actively use the opportunity rather than just look at our watches and look forward to iftar. But if we use that opportunity, it's a time of spiritual growth and, and liberation. <coughs> but Allah is qareeb, and we should 
final thought, not allow the difficulty of finding a traditional matrix, an institutional environment for our spiritual growth, apart from you know, occasional retreats, as an excuse for apathy and not making an effort. Deme ashkitre kim eder ershadi tariq sen heman yoluna gir Allah veliyut tawfiq famous Turkish line of poetry. Do not say, in the way of love, who is going to guide me to the path? You yourself should set out on that path, and Allah is the wali wa tawfiq, is the one who guarantees success. Take one step towards him, the hadith says, he will take ten steps towards you. Come towards him walking. He comes to you harwala, running, and this is a reality because he wishes to be found. He longs to be known Yiz al-Qarib, here's the reality of things, an infinitesimal distance behind their surface. He is ma'akum, ma kuntum, with you wherever you may be. You may not be with him because you're busy with your stuff, but he is present always, patiently awaiting you to open your eyes. And he is patient. So that's my final thought, a strategy for dealing with these weird times. Mercy, forgiveness, understanding, overcoming the ego, being forgiving of people's weird interpretations, making religion easier, not making it harder for people because everybody is struggling. And then finally, to remember that he has not gone away, even if human, humanity has gone away from him. Monotheism, the most powerful principle in history, continues to attract so many new Muslims and inquirers and uh, everybody craves through their fitra, this light of tawheed and the return to the one. Everybody wants tawbah, everybody wants healing. They want to be sorted out in God's hospital. Darushifai Khuda, as Rumi calls it, God's hospital. Mm. That's what we're for. Baby craves milk, we crave dhikrullah. This should not be difficult, but because of the nafs and the age of the nafs, the me generation has been made hard for us. But Allah continues to be qareeb, and he will open the doors of his mercy and his acceptance and his unveiling to those who sincerely and brokenheartedly approach him. And this is his guarantee. Why should he turn anybody from his generous gates if they humbly approach him. And this should be our intention in every prayer, as we fast, as we engage with each other, as we engage with the world of the, the egotistic void, as we pray for a healing for humanity and for the ummah. Uh, don't despair, have tawakkul, because Allah is qareeb and will always be qareeb. And we are from him and to him we return. Inna lillah. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala open our hearts and soften our hearts and overcome our egos and help us to be merciful and rahimun to humanity and uh, give us blessings in Sha'ban and bring us safely to Ramadan. Allahumma barik lana fi Sha'ban wa balighna Ramadan. Allahumma taqabal minna indikate sami'a alaneem wa tub alayna indikate tawab rahim Barakallahu fikum wal afu minkum wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.